0: Welcome to the Arise Church Podcast. At Arise, we're a community of imperfect people pursuing and experiencing a transformative relationship with Jesus and one another. For more information, you can find us online at ariseonline.org. Thanks for listening. Well, good morning. Mark chapter 6, verse 45, Mark's the second book in the New Testament, the gospel according to Mark is where we're going to be here this morning as we kick off this new series called Take Heart. uh, What does life look like whenever it seems like the odds are stacked against us when we're facing the storms of life? How can we overcome those uh, through the power and the truth of the word and in the spirit that God offers to us? So Mark chapter 6, verse 45, let's just dive right in. Immediately... He made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. So Jesus tells them immediately to go across the Sea of Galilee to Bethsaida. He says he doesn't say anything about packing a raincoat. He doesn't tell them about this impending storm uh, that's coming. I think that often God doesn't uh, tell us what we're about to experience because we can't handle the details. So he says just go across the lake to the other side, I'll meet you on the other side. Uh, By the way, you're going to almost die on the way. Didn't tell them that, but that's about what's going to happen here. Uh, Just go, and I will meet you there. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, some translations may say, straining at the oars, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, or just before dawn, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass them by. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they saw, all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased And they were utterly astounded, or they were amazed. If you have ever been in church, you've heard this story before. If you've ever been around a church, you've heard this story before. If you've accidentally driven by a church, you have heard this story before. If you have been on a church softball team, you have heard curse words and this story. This is a significant story because this teaches us that Jesus Christ is Lord of all creation. Theologically, that Jesus is sovereign. Uh, This is an epiphany story because it's a revelation of Jesus from the Old Testament that was given in a disclosed form when Moses was meeting with God at a burning bush. And the disclosure at that point was, I am. Moses said, who are you? And he said, I am. And it was interesting that over the next fourteen to 1,500 years, God would begin to unpack this I am statement for them, revealing, filling in the blank of who he was. He needed Israel to understand that he was water in a desert, that he needed them to understand that he is a warrior in their battles. He needed Israel to understand that he was their sustainer in their weariness. You will spend your life discovering and filling in that blank on your own discovering who God is, you will fill in that blank over time to the point that you might get to feeling like you know who God is and then life will so shift beneath your feet that you realize that you didn't really even know him at all. The disciples had spent an extended period of time with Jesus to this point. They had witnessed Jesus touching lepers. They had witnessed Jesus casting out demons. They had seen Jesus heal paralytics. They'd even seen Jesus... Raise people from the dead in certain circumstances. But there was something about this miracle that was significant to them, something that left them amazed and astounded, something that they had never seen before. It's significant to note here that the Scripture says that the wind was against them. The wind was against them because if you're like me, I assume that if God sends me to do something, that the wind is going to be with me. If God tells me to go somewhere, God tells me to do something, I think that the wind should be with me. And that's kind of the the premise to early Christianity. That's the premise to an immature faith, that if you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then he will take all of your burdens away. If you give your life over to God, then he's going to make you happy, healthy, and wealthy. If you give your life over to God, those things that keep you up at night won't keep you up at night anymore. This is the premise of an immature faith. We begin to fill in the blank and we realize when we see life that way, when we see God that way, when we have a faith that is based on that immature foundation, we realize that our claims to faith are often ways to manipulate God. And over time, we'll discover that just because the wind is against you doesn't mean that God is not for you. Because the wind is against you does not mean that God is not for you. Often, the fact that the wind is against you is confirmation that God is actually with you. Confirmation that God is with you is the fact that the wind is against you. And as you read the gospel of Mark specifically, but if you read the gospels and the New Testament letters, you realize that resistance that those moments in life when the wind is against you, those moments of resistance, resistance is a fertile soil for revelation. Those seasons of life when we face storms, when we face resistance, those are fertile soil. Those are the moments that lead to transformation. Those are the moments that lead to revelation. The wind was against the disciples here, not because they had disobeyed what God sent them to do, what Jesus had told them to do. But the wind was against them because they had actually obeyed his command. He said, go to Bethsaida. They followed his commands. They get in the boat. They go on the Sea of Galilee. They cross this little Sea of Galilee, and the wind is against them because they had followed his command. Now, we get it when it was Jonah, and Jonah. God told Jonah to go to Nineveh, and Jonah went to Tarshish, and when he was on his way to Tarshish, the wind was against Jonah because he was going to Tarshish and not Nineveh, and when God sends us to Nineveh and we go to Tarshish, we should expect that the wind is against us. But when God sends us to Bethsaida, and we go to Bethsaida, and we obey God, we expect the wind to work with us. We expect God to bless us when we come to church. We expect God to give us that parking spot that we want when we come to church. We expect God to give us the promotion that we want because we're faithful. We come to church. We give our time. We give our money. George doesn't come to church. George sleeps in on Sunday morning, but George got a raise, and you got fired. Where is God in that? How does God work in those situations? How can God be for me and the wind be against me? That's the question today. Often, confirmation that God is with us is found in the fact that the wind is against us, and here's why. We need the wind to be against us to know that the Lord's presence is with you, and that is what makes you successful. If the wind was working with you, when you got to your destination, you would thank the wind. If life circumstances were all working in your favor, and you were successful in life, and you were achieving the things in life that you had set out to achieve, if everything is working in your favor, you would of the circumstances of life instead of the presence of God. If the wind wasn't against you, you wouldn't need the Lord to step into the boat and speak peace and calm the storms. So the wind has to be against you to prove often that the Lord is with you. We see here the real Jesus, not the Pinterest Jesus, not the Jesus in a blue bathrobe with a white Miss America sash, you know, stroking the wool of the lamb. The real Jesus who sends his disciples into the storm knowing full well what's about to happen to them. And it says that he watches as they strained against the oars, as they made headway painfully. What's interesting about this region of the Galilee is the Sea of Galilee is more like a, is like a lake, a small lake. And the walk from where they were to Bethsaida was a little less than five miles. And the northern part of the sea is all elevated. And so as Jesus walked around the northern rim of the Sea of Galilee, everywhere he was, if you look at a map or if you've talked to someone who has been there, he could see them in their storm. He could see them in their storm. He could see the winds against them. He could see them straining, making headway painfully. And it reminds me that Jesus sees me in my storm, that Jesus sees you in your storm. Jesus knows what you're going through. Jesus knows what you have to deal with. Jesus knows what people have done to you. Jesus sees you in your storm, and Jesus sees my soul, that piece of me that I can cover up when I'm around people, but I can't hide from God. So Jesus saw them in, his, in this storm as he walked around throughout the night, the northern part of the Sea of Galilee, But if he saw them in the storm, why didn't he stop the storm? Why would Jesus send them into the storm? Why would he not step in as soon as the winds began to blow? Mark 6, 46, and he saw that they were making headway painfully, straining at the oars, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass them by. He meant to pass them by. I thought Jesus would never leave me. I thought Jesus would never forsake me. I thought Jesus would always be present with me, but he meant to pass them by, and they were terrified. Uh, you may not know this, but most scholars, most theologians believe that the gospel of Mark was simply a recounting from the, uh, the apostle Peter of his experiences with Jesus, so decades after this event, the, the common belief is that Peter was sitting with Mark, the evangelist. Mark was not a disciple. He was an evangelist, telling him about this moment. So this is, this is Peter's memoir of what had happened this night. So Peter's telling Mark this story here. He's telling in his story, in the, in the way that Mark records it here, you see that the storm rages, Jesus walks on water, he got in, and then the winds died down. It's interesting that when this story is told in other Gospels, there's a part that Mark left out. There's a part that Peter left out when he shared this story with Mark. So we're going to have a little interactive lesson today. You think you can do that? Can you interact with me here in a minute? So I'm going to read this story from the Gospel of Matthew. And when I get to the part that's different, when I get to the part that Mark left out, or when I get to the part that probably Peter left out, I want you to wave your arms, I want you to yell and tell me to stop, okay? This is the only time you have permission to tell me to stop preaching, okay? This is your chance, the thing you all have been wanting to do for so long. Wave your arms, everybody wave your arms, let's just practice, okay? And then you're going to yell, stop, 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 when we get to the part that wasn't in the Mark verse. Here we go. Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat, this is Matthew chapter 14, sorry. Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side. While he dismissed the crowds, and after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone, but the boat by this time was a long way off land, but beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. So far, so good? Sound pretty similar? A little different words here and there, but pretty much the same. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It's a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come. You guys got to be louder than that. (laughs) All right. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you command me to come to you on the water. He said, Jesus said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. Now, I don't know about you, if this is my memoir and this happened to me, I'm I'm putting this in. I'm not gonna leave this out from Mark, okay? So if someday after I die, somebody decides to write a a memoir or biography about me and I walk on water, you make sure that they leave that in there, okay? Now, I know I walk on water metaphorically in your heart, (laughs) but if I really do that, like... So far, so good. So far, this is pretty amazing, right? He steps out of the boat. He's walking on water. So why would he leave this out when he's telling Mark about what happened? I wonder if he left it out because of what happens next. Now, the disciples here in Matthew, in Mark, same story. They're still operating, doing exactly what Jesus had told them to do. He said, get in the boat and go to Bethsaida. So they're fighting against the wind to get to where Jesus led them. They could have turned around and gone back but they didn't. They're operating under the instruction of Jesus to take the boat to the other side. But Peter here is operating in the moment. He says, Lord, if it's you, tell me to come. And, and Jesus said, it's me, come. And Peter gets out of the boat. So he's operating in the moment, gets out of the boat and walks on water. Most sermons that you hear on this text will focus on Peter's faith to step out of the boat and to walk On water. And he wasn't wrong in doing that. And it's a beautiful, powerful story of faith. But I often wonder, and maybe what's significant for us today, is sometimes it's more significant to stay in the boat, to be obedient when the impulse is to escape it. Peter wasn't wrong, but it takes a lot of faith to keep rowing against the wind, straining at the oars when you can't see the shore. I wonder if Peter left this out when he talked to Mark because of what happened next, Matthew 14, 30. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. When he saw the wind, it's interesting. He called out to Jesus, Lord, if it's you, tell me to come. Jesus said, come. He heard the word of the Lord to come. But it says when he saw the wind, he began to sink. Sometimes, I pay more attention to what I see than to what God says. And anytime I give more focus to what I see, losing sight or memory of what God says, I begin to sink. When I pay more attention to the circumstances of life, to the storms of life, to the winds that are blowing in my soul, and I give more attention to that, and I forget about what God said, I begin to sink emotionally, emotionally. I begin to sink relationally. I begin to sink spiritually. Romans ten seventeen says, faith comes through hearing and hearing through the word of God. So how do we have faith? We have faith through hearing. What do we hear? The word of God. In 2 Corinthians, Paul says, for we walk by faith, faith that comes by hearing, not by sight, not by what we see. But when he saw the wind... He began to sink and he cried out, Lord, save me. And I imagine this is probably why he left this out when he told Mark about this night. Mark's like, hey, Peter, you know, I've heard this story before. You know, shouldn't I put that part in whenever you stepped out of the boat and you began to walk on water? Because that sounds pretty cool. That seems like it's a really important piece of the story. But we have to remember that this story is recorded decades later. That the gospel of Mark were written decades after the event happened. And I think maybe... Peter discovered something. Peter discovered something that he was sharing kind of in a covert way with Mark because it's been decades since this moment had happened. Back to Mark chapter six, verse 51. We're back in Mark. Peter's telling the story to Mark. He says, and when he, Jesus, got into the boat with them and the winds ceased and they were utterly astounded. Maybe what Peter discovered as he had decades to sit on this moment, to think about that night, maybe what Peter discovered was that it was not significant when he climbed out of the boat. As he's sitting with Mark, he's saying, Mark, it's not significant that I climbed out of the boat. When he got into the boat with them and the wind ceased, they were utterly astounded. Peter's saying, don't tell them what happened when I climbed out. Tell them what happened when he climbed in. It's not about when Peter stepped out of the boat onto the water. It's not about that they were straining all night at the oars. The wind didn't stop because Peter got out of the boat and walked on water. The wind didn't stop because they fought against the wind and strained against the oars all night. The wind died down because Jesus came and got into the boat with them. And Peter's saying that is the important piece of the story. That is the gospel. That is the gospel. That is the good news. Not that I came to God, but that God came to me. It's not because I'm good. We're just saying, you are good, you are good, when there's nothing good in me. It's not because I'm good. It's not because I'm glorious. It's not because of anything that I've done. We're not praising me because I got out of the boat, because I did something, but because he got in. It's not that I loved God, but that he loved me. That is at the heart of the gospel. Mark 6, 51 says, and they were utterly astounded, or some translations say they were utterly amazed. Why were they amazed? He sent them into this storm against the wind, and he used this moment, he used this situation to reveal his sufficiency. The storm served uh, served its purpose just like the hungry crowd did hours before this. They were amazed, verse 52 says, or verse 52 tells us why they were amazed. They were amazed because, or utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Hours before is the famous story of Jesus and the disciples feeding the 5,000. They had just left that event to get on the boat to Bethsaida. The reason that they were amazed, according to Mark, is because they had forgotten Or they did not understand about the loaves. This feeding of the 5,000 was a a miracle that was so important that it was included in all four gospels. Uh, It says that they fed 5,000 men. That was just men and didn't include, that count did not include women and children with a little boy's lunch. With a little boy's lunch. Now personally, I believe that Peter beat up the little boy and took his lunch. And the reason I say that is because I have kids and I've never seen my kids do anything sacrificial voluntarily. So Peter beat up the kid and took his lunch. You can read the Bible how you want to read. I have the microphone right now. So we're reading the Bible that Peter took the kid's lunch after he beat him up. But what's important to note here is that this miracle came from someone who wasn't even included in the official count. It was 5,000 men. That seems like that's what mattered in that time of the world in that time in history. This miracle came from someone who wasn't even included in the official count, and it teaches us that God's greatest miracles at times come from sources that many or that the world would deem as insignificant. The world celebrates all the wrong things, and they 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 say that this is significant and this is significant and this is significant. The five thousand men are significant. What Jesus does here he says no. This thing that you think is insignificant is going to be at the center of the story, and this is what I think is significant. Verse 51, it says, They were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. This had just happened right before the storm, hours ago. They had witnessed this miracle, but they did not understand it. They'd forgotten it. Their hearts were hardened. Has that ever happened to you? Where you've gone through a test where God had provided for you, and you go into a different test, and you forget the lesson from the last test where God provided for you because you're in a different test now, and God provided in a bigger way back then, and the thing that you're dealing with right now seems really little, but you forgot how God provided in the past and how God will provide yet again. The disciples here understood the loaves on one level. Physically, they ate, physically, the crowds were fed, but they missed it altogether. Jesus didn't feed the multitudes. Jesus didn't feed the 5,000 plus the women and the children so that they could see what he could do. Jesus didn't provide this miracle so they could see how he could work. Jesus didn't do this so they could see what he could do. Jesus performed this miracle so they could see who he was. To see who he was, and that is what the disciples missed. Uh, Charles Ellicott, a um, New Testament scholar wrote this. This is peculiar, this part of the story to St. Mark. It may, be fairly, uh, it may fairly be received as representing St. Peter's recollection of what had been the mental state of the disciples at the time. I told you, this is Peter telling Mark what had happened. They had not drawn from the miracle of the loaves the conclusion, conclusion which they might have drawn, that all natural forces were subject to their master's sovereignty, that Jesus was the great I am. Jesus here is saying, it's not about what I can do, it's about who I am. Jesus is saying, I am the bread of life. I am Yahweh, it's me. And you missed it all together. It was me when you were hungry in the desert. It was me when you were on the mountaintop. It was me when you were in the valley. It was me when you needed water in the desert. It was me in the burning bush. I am, I am The bread of life. I am sovereign over all creation. I am your refuge. I am a very present help in time of need. I am. And that's what Jesus wanted them to see. But it said their hearts were hardened. Not that they were in opposition to Jesus, but their hearts had been dulled to the truth of who he was and the revelation in that miracle that he wanted them to experience They saw the miracle take place. They handed out the bread to the people that were there, but they completely missed it. You can experience a miracle in your life and completely miss the significance of it. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ and you've placed your faith in him as your Lord and Savior, that is the greatest miracle that you could ever experience. That in our sin, Jesus would choose to step in and save us To forgive us of the things that we don't need to be forgiven for or deserve to be forgiven for. That is the most incredible miracle that any of us could ever experience. We can experience a miracle and and miss the significance. So if our salvation is the greatest miracle, the question we have to ask ourselves is, what did Jesus save you for? If you are a believer, what did Jesus save you for? Did he save you so that you can carry around the shame and the guilt of your sin from the past that was nailed to the cross for the rest of your life? What did Jesus save you for? Did he save you so that you can live the second half of your life just as selfishly as you lived the first half of your life, but this time with a cross around your neck? What did Jesus save you for? When God saved us, he didn't save us just simply from something. He saved us for something. He saved us for a purpose for a mission, for a calling. What did he save you for? The miracle was not just that the people were fed. It wasn't that they just ate bread. The miracle is not just what God does for you. The significance of the miracle is that in it, you see who he is. And you begin to fill in the blanks of that I am statement. That you see who Jesus is. The lesson in this story is to take what we learned from the loaves, whatever those loaves were in your life, those moments when you were in need, those moments when you were lacking, those moments when you were in the storm, when God provided in the past when you had a need and he stepped up and he met it, to take what you learned from the loaves and remember it in the storm. When you're straining at the oars and you're making headway against the winds and you can't see the shore Remember the lesson of the loaves, that Jesus is present, that Jesus sees us in our storm. Next time the storms rage, remember his faithfulness. Next time the winds in your life blow, remember his provision and his providence in the past. And another lesson for us to realize here is that at the end of this storm, we'll be in Bethsaida. Jesus said he would meet you on the other side. And if Jesus sends you to do something and he promises to meet you on the other side of whatever that is, that means that you're not going to die in the boat on the lake at night. Remember that God is faithful. What he has called you to, he will not leave you. He will not forsake you. He is very present in whatever needs you have in your life. And remember, most importantly, the storms of life are not calmed by anything that we do. It's not calmed by our straining. It's not calmed by stepping out of the boat, whatever that may look like in your life, but in recognizing that it's because Jesus came to us and that our hope is only in the gospel. That's it. Let's pray. God, I don't know where everyone in this room is today. Maybe they're sailing along through life and the winds are in their sails and they're just clicking along and everything is going well, but I would imagine that this room is filled with people who feel like the winds of life are blowing against them. God, where hope is in short supply. God, where we feel disconnected from you. God, where we we want your presence, we want to feel your presence, we want to sense your presence, but for some reason we just can't see it because of the waves, because of the wind, and the shore just doesn't seem to be in sight. God, I pray that you would draw our hearts back to the truth of the gospel. God, and that we would stop trying to earn whatever it is we're trying to earn in life, that we would stop trying to calm the storms of our life through our own actions, God, but that we would rest in the hope of the gospel. And that it's you came to us, not us coming to you. That it's only when you get in the boat that the wind stopped, and the storms ended. God, so in whatever situation we're in today, we invite you to step into the boat. God, that we would stop straining, that we would stop fighting. God, that we would not lose hope, that God, we would take heart in who you are. God, and that we would be reminded in who you are of who we are, your children, heirs to the throne, as we talked about last week, your sons and daughters who have been crowned with glory because of your great love for us. God, let us not forget your faithfulness in the past. God, let us hope in the faithfulness that we have yet to experience. In your name we pray.